In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. When a war drags on for months, and then years, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine is doing now, it can be tempting to look for any sign the tide might be turning, that something might be changing. A sleekly produced video has been released by Ukraine's defense officials showing soldiers urging silence surrounding its expected broad assault against invading forces, all aimed at retaking Russian-occupied territory in the east and the south. That's why whispers of a spring and summer Ukrainian offensive sounded so hopeful to so many, a push that could break through Russian lines, reclaim territory, and even take the war to Russia itself to sap support for Putin's plan. Unfortunately, in war, things change quickly, and the aggressor doesn't often follow the rules. This morning, a major disaster unfolding in southern Ukraine. Drone video showing the Dnipro River gushing through a critical dam and hydroelectric power plant. This video shot from the banks showing huge chunks of the Kohovka Dam destroyed. In the past day or so, a destroyed dam has unleashed a torrent of water that poses threats to life, homes, infrastructure, and perhaps to Ukrainian plans for the next few weeks. It may also pose a threat to a nuclear plant, and it will undoubtedly result in serious environmental consequences. So what do we know about the sudden dam collapse? About the past few weeks, which had seen a shift in this war? About how far Russia is prepared to go to support its failing invasion? And what, in this conflict at long last, might actually signal a turning point? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Vulcan Devlin is a super forecaster at Good Judgment Incorporated and senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He comes on this show every so often to describe the uh, increasingly terrifying state of world affairs, Balkan? <laughs> well, unfortunately, yes. I wish we could talk more uh, cheerful subjects, but the world does not seem to be uh, you know, playing in our favor. I want to ask you first, before we get into the details of what's going on in the uh, conflict and invasion of Ukraine, over the past 24 hours and maybe over the past week or so, has this conflict entered a new phase? In a way, it is. The uh, most likely, the much-weighted uh, Ukrainian offensive started, but it's you know there's so much fog of war right now, so we're not particularly sure uh, to what extent the operations are the actual thrust of the of the upcoming offensive, or it is just a feigning attempt to do so. But it is clear that once the Russian sort of winter offensive fizzled out and 
basically bogged down in, in Bakhmut and didn't really do anything else. The, the counteroffensive um, that the Ukrainians have been preparing for and you know, building brigades and, and, and equipping them with the Western weapons and training and so on and so forth seems to be starting. Instead of a spring offensive, it's clearly going to be a summer offensive. So we might say that we are now in a new phase uh, of, the, of the war. I'll talk about the offensive in just a second because we do know a little bit about, you know, to your point, what it's been building to. But first, we're speaking today just, I guess, 12 hours or so after a major dam failed in southern Ukraine. I know, as you mentioned, uh, fog of war makes it a quickly evolving situation where nothing is certain. But can you explain what that dam is and what we do know so far? So the, the dam itself is one of the several along the Dnipro uh, River in the Kherson uh, region. And it serves basically, I mean, multiple things, but two things are, are quite important about, about that particular dam. The, uh, the first one is that it provides the, the significant amount of the cooling water for the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant that provides the cooling for the, for the reactors. Although it seems like there is no imminent danger to the operation of, of that nuclear power plant. It is going to be a problem. So it's, it's one important important aspect. The other one is, is of course, it's also part of the canal system that provides water to, to the Crimean uh, Peninsula. So those two things make it important. And the, the, the damage to the dam, that's basically blowing up uh, and opening, is also uh, created not only sort of in humanitarian disaster, thousands of people will be affected, the areas are being flooded, but it's also ecological disaster as, as it destroys the environment and, and actually continues to pollute the Black Sea going forward. But it also does have a military consequences because it makes it harder for Ukraine to operate, to cross the river on the other side and make operations towards the south much harder. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why the Russians blew that up. Do we know that it was the Russians blowing it up? And do we know um, at this point, I guess, what purpose it serves for them? Is it just specifically to cause chaos in the Ukrainian side of the river? The best sort of evidence is when, when Kremlin denies something. Huh. When they deny it, uh, you, you can be pretty sure that it's, it's, it's the Russians. But on another note, I think one of the sort of important you know, pieces of evidence is that Zelensky back in October 2022 actually warned about this particular dam and that the Russians are mining it, hmm. right? So first, there is that. So there was we know it was under the control of the Russian invading forces, and you know Ukrainians did warn that they actually are mining it. And the the, the second one, of course, is that in a very similar way to the MH17, you know, shooting down of the Malaysian airlines over Ukraine before this uh, invasion started. The troops on the ground are are bragging about it. Huh. You, you have, you know, telegram channels and, and, and others. The Russian troops basically saying that, oh, yes, we did it and uh, we should do more of it, etc. They're probably going to have him, you know, uh, shut up pretty soon. But you have uh, on the ground suggestions that. So we have Kremlin denying it, but also that the Ukrainians have been warning about this is this is going to happen. Now, the military side of it, uh, like I said before, I'm not a military analyst, but uh, to me, what it looks like, and when I read people who, who knows more than I do on this, uh, the suggestion is that because it makes operations in the South harder for Ukrainians, it, it enables the Russians to defend a smaller territory, which means they can concentrate their forces. And then they can actually move some of the forces from the south 
towards the east, say Bahmut and, and, and other places. So it provides them in a way a natural protection, another barrier, which would make it a lot harder for Ukrainians to cross the river and, and conduct operations in the south. So it will benefit uh, the Russians on that side. And of course, the third one is that it also would create all the sort of the chaos and, and a potential uh, damage to the Zaporizhia power plant again. Uh, that would raise a lot of alarms. The Ukrainians need to find ways to deal with this with this damage, etc. So uh, there will be you know advantages for Russians uh, for doing this. But again, you know this is war. It's very hard to figure out whether that would actually work the way that Russians hoped that it would do. All the evidence and all the sort of the, the reasoning, at least to me, suggests that this is the Russian blowing up uh, blowing up the dam. Occam's razor basically suggests that. Last question about the dam before we talk about uh, the offensive. From a geopolitical point of view, you mentioned that this is an ecological disaster. What does it mean when that kind of destruction is used as a weapon of war? What message does it send to the international community watching this, helping Ukraine, etc.? I think it, it's another you know, evidence, another proof, not that we need more, but that the Russian side is not willing to play by by the rules of war. This is a very clear uh, violation of the Geneva Convention. So it is another complete disregard of how to act in accordance with international law in a very similar way that you know, Russians are targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. In Ukraine, they are destroying and creating this ecological uh, disaster, conducting massacres and, and, and cleansing and, and kidnappings. So they, they seem to have a list of uh, war crimes and they seem to be taking each one of them one by one. And, and it should be a sign for us in the West that the way some argue, for example, for coming to a ceasefire and agreement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with the Russians, it's, it's quite clear that it is it's almost impossible to believe that the Russians will will keep their word as they continuously commit war crimes uh, in their in their invasion. If this attack on the dam was indeed in response to a planned Ukrainian offensive, what do we know about that offensive and what it might do to the conflict? I know, I think there have been some strikes already on Russian front lines. Can you just give us a sense? I know, not from a tactical point of view, but of of what's happening along the lines at this point. It's very early to say anything, and like I said, I'm, I'm not a military uh, you know, analyst. And mm-hmm. you know, Ukrainians are keeping their cards very close to their chests, which makes a lot of sense uh, given the operational security. So I'm not going to necessarily uh, speculate on that. But to me, I think there are uh, there's a military side of things about you know how can you engage in you know combined arms operations and and push the front and, and liberate more territory on the one hand, and then there's the political component. Uh, which is, I think, as if not more important than the military side of it. And that is to show Ukraine's partners and allies in the West that Ukraine can effectively engage in, in a counteroffensive. And I think that is going to be the, the, the key part of it. Now, whether it's going to go to the south, whether it's going to go to the east, where they will strike, I have no, frankly, idea. And there could be multiple axes of attack. That could be one it could be faints. It's it's and war is very contingent, as, as as Michael Kaufman would put it. So it's very very hard to know how this this would go. But to me, it's it's quite clear that the Ukrainians have been preparing for this. They take their time. They make sure 
that uh, they have enough capabilities, they have enough brigades, and they choose the time that they think is most advantageous, both militarily and politically, to engage in this offensive. And this this could go for weeks. And you know, so it's, it's very hard to know where will there be any breakthroughs, we'll see. But it's very important to also keep things in perspective and, and manage expectations that you know, offense is always harder. Right? Yeah. The typical ratio is you know one to three in terms of the defender's advantage. You need three times the resources and the men and so on and so forth to engage in a, in a successful counteroffensive. It's easier to defend. And Russians have been preparing throughout the whole spring. So it's going to be brutal. It's going to be grinding. It's going to be uh, attritional. We're just seeing the start of it. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Politically, what does it do to the international support for Ukraine and the coalition that has been uh, pretty strong around them, providing munitions and supplies when the Ukrainian army, which has so far been focused almost solely on defense, switches to offense? What does that signal to the community and could that impact the support? I think it will have an impact, but I think that's why it's important to manage the expectations as well. I mean, whatever the outcome of this particular counteroffensive, it's not going to end the war. Ukraine have been getting you know, supplies, bought ammunition and tanks and other weapons and, and reconstituting brigades and, and training them and keeping them outside, the, the fighting, etc. But once this particular offensive culminates this summer, the war still will be on. We would still have you know, Russian troops in Ukraine, uh, despite you know whatever the you know, potential territorial gains that Ukraine could achieve. And it's important that the West continues to supply and provide the necessary material and economic support for Ukraine and for them to be able to show that all these resources that are being provided can be put to good use, that you know Ukraine can engage in a successful counteroffensive and, and regain territory and push back uh, the Russians will be essential to convince some of the uh, of the Western allies that a new a trench of, of support need to be provided. I mean, the weapons ammunition will be used. Yeah, Tanks will be destroyed. We would need to provide more because the war is not going to end this year. What about from the Russian side of things? You know, we've talked a couple of times about this conflict and this invasion, how it hasn't gone the way obviously uh, Putin and his generals would have preferred it to go or even expected it to go. What is happening now from their perspective when you're telling me that Russian forces are preparing to defend uh, rather than try to continue the invasion? For them, it's about digging in, and I'm not particularly sure they will try to push back. But for them, it is about how, to what extent, they can stand this counteroffensive and dig in and ensure that they keep uh, the, the majority uh, of the territories they're currently occupying. So. This time they will be on the other side, right? They have been on the offensive, but this time they will be on the other side of things. Now, it will be interesting to see to what extent that what that does to the morale. I think it would be 
uh, sapping the morale of already a low morale situation among Russian troops. The quality of the troops doesn't seem to be particularly high. Um, that's why I think Ukrainians are also sort of uh, optimistic about the possibility of having breakthroughs. But there is a very clear asymmetry between the motivations of, of both sides, right? Ukrainians are defending for their homelands. They're trying to get their home back. And most of the Russian troops are either conscripts, uh, they, their best quality troops have been killed. Uh, at least in Bahmut, they have been grinded to, to a certain uh, extent. They are having the uh, the so-called volunteers of the mobics, the sort of the mobilized personnel, etc. Most of them don't want to be there. The conditions are not particularly great. There, it, it, there is whole sort of infighting between Wagner and the, and the regular Russian troops and other PMCs. So the, the morale situation is not great. And if the Ukrainians can actually successfully conduct a localized and concentrated attack, they might break through the ranks. And if they do, that might, you know, change the dynamics significantly. So it will further degrade their morale. And that that is one hopeful sign that can you know, hopefully surprise us with a, with a bigger uh, Ukrainian success in the war. What about beyond the front lines of this conflict? I know some of our listeners probably don't uh, hear daily updates on what's taking place, but I know that uh, Russia has been aggressively attacking Kyiv. And on the other side of things, I have no idea how verified this is, but I do recall reports about a potential Ukrainian attack far beyond the front lines trying to get uh, into Moscow. What do we know about how far the war has spread beyond those front lines? I mean, Russians are, you know, in the past few weeks, actually past month, ramped up their missile attacks uh, on Kiev to terrorize the population as well as divert air defense resources and systems away from the front lines, uh, because you're putting in uh, Ukrainians in a in a double bind. You have limited resources. You have to ration uh, your air defense systems. Uh, are you going to do that to protect? your troops on the front lines? Or are you using them? Are you going to use them to protect your civilians and your cities? Mm-hmm. And for for Russians, uh, forcing this particular choice and you know forcing Ukrainians to use their uh, precious, in that sense, air defense uh, systems by using the you know cheap, relatively cheap Iranian Shahid uh, drones, for example, is both psychologically to terrorize the population, but also militarily is a, is a good bang for their buck uh, because you you know you you have Ukrainians waste those resources, which means you will have less for the advancing troops in the front lines, etc. So they will continue to do that. Now, I would say we will see increasing Ukrainian and Ukrainian aligned, you know, partisan and sabotage activity, uh, both in the in the occupied uh, territories within Ukraine, as well as on the border with Russia and perhaps within Russia itself. But otherwise, I would be very, very surprised to see, you know, sort of direct Ukrainian armed forces attack within uh, within Russia. We will most likely see more uh, going on in the occupied territories, including Crimea, uh, with direct attacks to the uh, military installations there. But the events that will be happening, be it in Moscow or in the, in the, in the border areas, will be primarily uh, through uh, you know, Ukrainian military intelligence, guided, you know, sponsored and, and, and supported uh, partisan um, activity or covered operations, uh, which would, I think, already started having a psychological impact on the Russians, seeing that 
well, you know, the war is here as well. It's not something that happens to the others and we just continue to enjoy our lives here. No, it is it is coming to them. And I think that is a, a very important psychological weapon that Ukraine would need to use and will use more. You mentioned, and this is my last question, I'm not asking you to predict anything, even though technically I should, because that's your job. But you mentioned earlier that this won't end the war. And I say, okay, what will? Well, it's very hard. I mean, the war ends when uh, the cost of continuing the occupation and invasion uh, for the Russian side, for the Russian political leadership, exceeds the benefits that they think they are uh, they're getting out of it. Is it moving in that direction in terms of, you mentioned the psychological cost of the war coming home and the potential of perhaps breaking through the lines? Like, is it trending that way? I'm just trying to get a sense in general. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it will eventually uh, move there if we continue to provide the necessary resources and the capabilities that Ukrainians have. The, the key issue to me is, is this. In terms of mass, in terms of the quantity, the Russians have advantage. Well, the manpower as well as all the dumb weapons and, and, and missiles, etc. Ukrainian advantage is the morale, the focus, as well as the precision weaponry that the West is, is providing. So you cannot you know, fight quantity that particular way. You cannot match the Russian quantity, but we could match with better quality. That will degrade Russia's ability to pursue and prosecute this war. Yes, they're producing more, but they're not catching up to the level that they're, you know, they're spending, right? They are not matching or replacing their losses, both in terms of men, mm -hmm. in terms of ammunition, in terms of weapon systems. So they will, over time, their ability to conduct these operations continue to degrade. They're not able to, uh, to maintain this particular tempo. Now, when you cross that particular threshold, then things would start looking different within uh, within Russia as well. If we can sort of make the Russian population understand that they are not isolated and insulated from the effects of this war, that will put extra pressure on Putin. I mean, by all accounts, by different things. I mean, Putin is a risk-averse guy. Mm -hmm. You know, it may not look like this way, and, I, and we talked about this before, but he is a risk-averse guy. He changed tactics even in this invasion, right? He gave up the idea of going through to Kiev, at least temporarily. Uh, he, he redirected his resources. He's very, very reluctant to engage in full mobilization. He still doesn't call it the war because he doesn't want to call the, all the conscripts, etc. So he is very, very much also worried about the domestic costs of this war. So we need to increase those costs for him and for the elite for us to to end this this war. So but like I said, it's going to be it's going to be a long one. Maybe 2024 20, we might start seeing the beginning of the end, but it will it will be a long war. And in the meantime, does the risk of out of bounds attacks like the one we just saw on the dam continue to increase as Russia kind of gets more desperate? Yes, I would expect greater uh, attacks and uh, especially on civilian targets on infrastructure across um, across Ukraine. Uh, including dams and other other infrastructure, I still don't see the nuclear issue uh, coming back. To be honest, you know, I, there's all other different options for Russia to escalate in the way that we just see now, without resorting to to the use of nuclear weapons. So I don't think that is on the table at all. Uh, but we will see as Russia gets more desperate. We'll try to to target rest of Ukraine, target civilian population, perhaps utilize air force more, um, etc. 
as they try to divert both resources and, and, and effort on the Ukrainian part to deal with these other, other damages. Balkan, as always, thank you for this. We'll see what happens uh, in the coming days with this water. Thanks for having me. Balkan Devlin, super forecaster for Good Judgment Incorporated and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. That was The Big Story. For more, including previous interviews with Balkan, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, and you can write to us. The email address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find The Big Story anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, you can ask your smart speaker to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.